0: Good morning, this is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Wednesday the 15th of April and we are still in lockdown. The question on everyone's mind is when will we be able to exit the lockdown? Well, not anytime soon. It looks and the announcement will come tomorrow like we're in for a serious extension with some warning intermittent lockdowns and social distancing will become the norm until a vaccine is found. Uh, Those of you who've listened to this show for some time will know that I think there is a trilemma, a kind of three-way pull at the heart of coronavirus policy. And I think uh, the three sides of that triangle are the economy, public health, and civil liberties. And in the classic trilemma formulation, you can satisfy two sides of the triangle, but never the third. So you might put everyone back to work, you might allow them to circulate freely however they want, uh, and that might mean you get what you need on the economy and certainly everyone's free, but the public health implications would be catastrophic. Now this trilemma is not a perfect heuristic for these problems by any means. Issues can be lopsided. The differences between them can be actually hard to delineate. Do we have a right to health, for instance, or at least not to be recklessly endangered by, our, by the actions of our government or by businesses? And where does one issue end and the other begin? It's useful, however, uh, in thinking through political problems as we encounter them. And one of the solutions that's been intermittently floated by the government has been a kind of medical passport, something that certify, certifies that you have had the illness and are therefore free to move around and, importantly, get back to work. The latter of these, of course, is perhaps of more importance to the government than the former. Uh, Now, such a passport is a long way off... Uh, it would depend on the existence of a reliable and widely available test that would demonstrate that you'd had the illness. And although the government made headlines a couple of weeks ago by saying they were definitely going to have just such a test soon, uh, and in the millions, and indeed had purchased them, in fact they turned out to be too unreliable to use. But let's imagine that we do have just such a passport. Naturally there are civil liberty issues involved, all sorts of uncomfortable issues about segmenting the population according to their physical health, or perhaps their Perceived level of risk. Uh, From that picture, in turn, there spring two problems. One is just one of simple compliance. Blanket measures can gain some popular buy in as they affect everyone equally. Would that remain the same? Or would there be a tipping point of some kind where people who are at low risk of death themselves just start to flout the restriction? But there's another question about this kind of policy, and it comes from the way that political decisions, which are made on the hoof, often stick around. And we've talked about this a lot before, especially in our whistle-stop of various European uh, emergency powers. Uh, A power arrives in one emergency, uh, or or a new law is passed, and then it just sticks around in one form or another as a kind of new normal. In this case, I'm thinking about something a little different. Not that the measures themselves might stick around, but the way of approaching them will set the new standard for government interventions of this kind. Now, if you think this is just a -a once-in-a-century event, at most, that a viral pathogen just happened to mutate to just exactly the rate of infection and lethality needed for mass spread, then perhaps this doesn't matter. But there's another argument that says the incidence of pathogens like this are likely only to increase with, among other factors, human intrusion on nature. So what's important here, I think, is twofold. Which political answers become acceptable in a time like this and whether they set the pattern both for dealing with another pandemic but also how they then feed back into the wider matrix of policy making and politics and one might be a greater acceptance of that kind of population segmentation Uh, another might be a greater disdain for the old along the lines that some of the hard right are now arguing effectively your nan must die so jp morgan's profit rate can tick back up sorry Obviously both of these are capable of some terribly dark inflections but I also want to resist the pull to dystopia which becomes so easy in times like these. There are other inflections and other shifts of value which might well come out of the other side of this but which are hard to see as yet and perhaps more on dystopia in the coming week. But if not medical passports, why not an app? And it's been a few years since the fallback idea of every politician in a bind was an app, uh, indeed, since Matt Hancock, now the health secretary, launched Matt Hancock the App, a true low point in digital innovation. But obviously, it's been making a comeback since the importance of contact tracing has been recognised. And the same Matt Hancock did indeed float a UK app for contact tracing usually using mobile phone location data. Of course, such an app would be voluntary. Yeah, it is at least suggested, I and mean, one can see it becoming very heavily suggested alongside a medical passport for instance. And yes there are all the civil liberty concerns, however effective the Chinese wall or arm's length secrecy put in place, I really don't like giving the government access to my location data, or easier access anyway, given that a few years ago GCHQ was revealed to be widely spying on British citizens to a rather muted response. Maybe we've all become simply inured to the idea of an all-seeing eye staring at us from Cheltenham. Uh, I think we're certainly all too blasé about our personal data. Privacy rights are tremendously difficult to re-establish after they're gone. But let's put the explicitly political concerns about biosurveillance to one side, and let's not forget about it. Would such an app even work? We know that contact tracing actually matters and can be incredibly effective. But most of the forms proposed for use on phones have their limits. Technology, say a piece of software that logs an ID for each phone it comes near using, say, Bluetooth, that has its limitations. Uh, Let's say I have a conversation with my neighbor on the boat next to me, standing a couple of meters apart while the wind blows. My phone might log that as a contact, but the risk of infection would be extremely slight. Imagine we're in a supermarket queue, all behaving properly and properly socially distanced, with that flag as a contact. There are hosts of other problems as well, all normal to the questions of human behavior around technology. If I start to get loads of notifications on my phone that I've been near someone who's tested positive, does my behavior change? Do I just start clicking yes, go away on all the notifications, kind of half consciously, just wanting to get rid of them? And that's not to mention the whole host of normal problems from bad actors. Let's say my kid wants a day of, you know, wants to miss a day of school because he has a test coming up that he hasn't prepared for. So time to ping some positives on the app. and That's just the sunniest kind of bad actor. There are far, far worse. A host of these questions are raised by Ross Anderson, Professor of Security Engineering at Cambridge, uh, in a blog post where he looks over some of the immediate problems that a contact tracing app might just present to us. Now, I'll pop a link to his post in the notes to this show, but I think the most important thing to take away on a purely technological front is that as much as politicians might wish otherwise, there's no magic bullet here. There's no pristine map of data which also understands the complexity of human interaction just sitting out there waiting to be used by government to solve the problem. In turn, there's no entity which doesn't suffer mission creep when it gets its hands on this kind of data. And in turn, for the data to be useful, there will be pressures against its full anonymization. Raw data, as they say, is an oxymoron. Uh, none of that is to say it won't both be likely to exist and a useful tool, But the more technologically literate press uh, might actually ask some of these questions of a minister when he promises a magic tech solution coming down the line. Might ask, for instance, what happens to the data in the long run. Don't hold your breath. Still... Work on an app or a protocol to handle data is happening at breakneck speed with suggestions about encrypted and distributed pseudonymous logs and the like. I just want to point out some of the the five questions that have been raised by the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, which I think are good ones to ask, especially on health data, but perhaps about every app that harvests data and especially those shared with government organisations. One, what is the goal of the deployment? Two, what data? For instance, is it aggregate and anonymized? Uh, you know, how precisely can the information pinpoint locations? Three, who gets the data? So is it the government that gets access to the raw data? Is it shared uh, only with uh, government entities targeted to public health? Uh, is, does it go to, to academics or to hospitals? Uh, does it remain in the hands of the private entity um, which initially collected it? So Four, how is the data used? Obviously, uh, in terms of actual government action you know, issuing or enforcing quarantine orders is it used uh, more sharply or more punitively uh, by the disciplinary arm of the state uh, and five most importantly in some ways what is the life cycle of the data uh, a question which circulates around uh, all of these scandals all of these scandals around data is just that when would it be deleted uh, the police of course notorious for failing to delete data uh, worth keeping, of course, those questions in mind, especially as the general level of technical literacy among our political lords and masters seems to extend to taking a screenshot by pointing a camera at a monitor. Now. Money. You will doubtless have seen yesterday the OBR, the Office for Budgetary Responsibility, scenario modelling circulating. Uh, that's for tracking GDP in response to the lockdown. It's a scenario uh, that's basically a line that crashes massively this year, then rebounds and soars to the sky in the next year. Then uh, everything returns to the projection Honest, Gov. Uh, the IMF has produced similar modelling, because I guess you have to call it that, for the global situation. Yet they also warn at the same time This is a global recession, possibly equivalent to 2008, or really, looking much further back, the Great Depression. Indeed, uh, perhaps the worst since the South Sea bubble of 1720. Some are calling it the Great Lockdown. I asked James Meadway what we should actually make of all this.
1: The government's official forecasts at the Office for Budget Responsibility today produced its first assessment of the economic impact of COVID-19. As would be expected, the crisis is overwhelming, a 35% drop in output in the three months to June this year and unemployment rising to something like 10%. But don't worry too much about this, since if the OBR projections are to be believed, the economy will grow at an extraordinarily rapid pace from June onwards. Like a rubber ball dropped from a great height, the economy will hit the bottom in midsummer and rebound to new and greater heights before settling back down exactly where it was before. Now, in fairness to the Office of Budget Responsibility, they do say in the report that the projections for an extraordinarily rapid rebound is based on the assumption that the British economy will in fact rebound. It's not, in other words, a forecast so much as a scenario. A description of one possible path for the future to take, not a prediction of the path it will take. It is based on the assumptions that are fed into the model. It is not modelling of what will happen. But importantly, this is the best case scenario. Any other remotely plausible state uh, of the world is going to look a lot worse than this. The International Monetary Fund, for its part, also produced its forecast today and present a significantly less rosy picture, with the UK amongst the worst affected of major economies well into next year. But beyond the immediate crisis, there is every reason to think that Britain will not be looking at the so-called V-shaped recovery the Office of Budget Responsibility described, so rapidly down, and then rapidly back up again, but something more like a U or even an L shape to the future. In other words, a period of slump followed by a long, slow recovery, describing a U on the graph, or simply no meaningful recovery at all, making the shape of an L. The reasons to suspect that we will get a U or even an L shape are in two parts. First, that even the exceptional support offered by this government to those facing unemployment or businesses facing ruin won't be enough, with too many people, uh, the self-employed and small businesses especially, falling through the cracks. The cracks are there in the support in part because, in typical Treasury style, uh, the assistance offered has been designed to be unwound as quickly as possible. For instance, it would have been quicker, easier and fairer to simply make universal payments to everyone, but making something universal makes it popular. Think about the NHS. Everyone gets it. Everyone loves it. And so it makes it harder to get rid of later when you want to unwind all the support that has been offered. But the more people are unemployed and pushed towards destitution, the more businesses go bankrupt, and the more protracted and uncertain the recovery will be as a result. If fewer people are able to spend and fewer businesses around to employ them, demand will be weak. And if demand is weak, the economy slows down. The second part is more speculative, but early signs point towards it. After the 2008-09 crash, now dwarfed by this uh, economic cataclysm we are living through, economies like Britain never recovered back to where they were. Growth was permanently lower, in Britain dramatically so, and living standards permanently depressed. After this shock, with supply lines torn up, new working habits adopted or imposed, and potentially the high costs of sustained anti-pandemic surveillance, from medical monitoring to data sharing, there is a substantial chance that growth on the other side of this crisis right now will be depressed over the longer term. This is the L-shape. So we can speculate about the future. But the really important points are these. First, the government is already under pressure to end the lockdown and dramatic economic figures are used to add weight to the argument that it should be ended quickly. We shouldn't let them. Protecting people is more important than protecting GDP. Second, the arguments for a return to normality, including a return to austerity, are already being lined up and the OBR's story of a rapid rebound plays into them. We should be clear on this too. We do not want and should not accept a return to the status quo after this has played out. The post-COVID economy must be more resilient to shocks, more secure for more people, and certainly far fairer than the pre-COVID shambles we've been living in.
0: My thanks to James for that. And that's precisely the point I think that is important about resisting calls both to sacrifice people, human beings on the altar of GDP, and the likely push towards austerity which might come down the line and is indeed already being invoked. The politics of this economic shock are coming and they won't be quietened by Rishi Sunak singing his own praises at a lectern in Downing Street. As a headline on a piece by the notoriously cheery Martin Wolf in the Financial Times puts it, the global economic system is already collapsing. So be prepared. Okay, On my mind over the weekend and yesterday has been the UK death toll, which as of yesterday passed 12,000 in the official figures. It is a staggering number and it's hard to visualise and when you really think about it, hard to bear. The Office for National Statistics yesterday also highlighted, and I think this is important, that the actual deaths from COVID-19 could be 15% higher than the daily government figures suggest, as well as strong indications uh, yesterday that the number of deaths in care homes is being wildly understated. On top of this, graphs produced by the government comparing the international situation don't seem to compare like-for-like like numbers. So the French numbers, which seem to be above ours on the government graph, include deaths that the UK's numbers currently do not. This is obviously not good enough, but the government seems pretty diffident when it comes to actually doing anything about it. Uh, that's at least on the basis of their briefing yesterday. There were claims last week, and plausible ones, though though forecasting this stuff I think really genuinely is truly difficult. The UK's death toll may end up higher and higher per capita than any other nation in Western Europe, and that is undoubtedly a political question, and a question which bears political responsibility, which raises questions about who did what when, when they started to take it seriously, about failures of reaction and preparedness. With news today that the ventilators rolled off manufacturing lines after the health secretary's appeal, uh, they, they won't match up to the specifications needed for COVID-19 patients. That question, again, should be staring us right in the face. But really instead, it's those numbers that stare at us right in the face. Those numbers displaced from the front pages again and again as they ratcheted up last week, as the press worked itself into a permanent lava over the fate of just one man, with none of the seriousness and gravity and dire prognostications they gave about Italy when it was hitting the same numbers a few weeks ago. 12,000 dead. That's the thing that should occupy us, each of them. Uh, and we should resist the frankly horrifying push to treat these as deaths that would have happened anyway, sooner or later. So it's nothing to be concerned about, and let's get the economy rolling again. We must not become numb to them, and we must not treat them as inevitable casualties. Sad, perhaps, in some abstract way, but of little concern to politics. The best way I know to keep that in mind is this. No people are uninteresting. Their fate is like the chronicle of planets. Nothing in them is not particular, and planet is dissimilar from planet. And if a man lived in obscurity, making his friends in that obscurity, obscurity is not uninteresting. To each his world is private, and in that world one excellent minute, and in that world one tragic minute. These are private. In any man who dies, there dies with him his first snow, and kiss, and fight it goes with him. There are left books and bridges and painted canvas and machinery whose fate it is to survive. But what has gone is also not nothing. By the rule of the game something has gone. Not people die but worlds die in them. Whom we knew as faulty, the earth's creatures of whom essentially what did we know? Brother of a brother? Friend of friends? Lover of lover? We who knew our fathers in everything, in nothing. They perish. They cannot be brought back. The secret worlds are not regenerated. And every time, again and again, I make my lament against destruction. That's a poem by Yevgeny Yevtushenko. And I think there are worse guides for thinking about an ethical response uh, and the grounding of a political response to all of this. Uh, In the news today, effectively a wide out briefing that the lockdown is definitely still going to continue for some time. That announcement will come tomorrow, but it is, it appears effectively, already decided. Donald Trump, in his latest exercise in sociopathy, announced that he was pulling all US funding from the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. The Department for Work and Pensions is due to announce new details on the impact of those 1.4 million new Universal Credit claimants. Matt Hancock is due to talk about social care at this afternoon's briefing. And Keir Starmer does his first proper big round of news interviews this morning, mostly on the coronavirus, but I wonder how far he'll be pushed on that leaked Labour report, which Ash Sarkar of course talked about on the burner yesterday does leave us with a question and one which I find hard to answer. In a purely political sense, in the sense of the politics of the Labour Party, what does Keir Starmer actually want? What should this report give him the opportunity to do? As ever, I find him like an Easter Island head, granite, silent, impenetrable, maybe slightly more nasal. More on that to come. Last, this, from Cardi B, on a live stream with Bernie Sanders last night.
1: They put... Capitalism, money, trading, goods before our health.
0: You can say that again. All right, as ever, semi tips, stories, angles, especially news from abroad and news from the global south on the coronavirus. What are we missing? You can hit me up on james at NavarraMedia.com and please do. Stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, and don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.